0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman speaks with design legend Tom Geismar about how the practice of design has changed since the 1950s. You know, one of the things when we started the firm, the idea was to work collaboratively. And again, that was unheard of. All those great teachers that we had at Yale, I think all of them were on their own or were the art director of a magazine or something, but we thought he could do it in a different way. Here's Debbie Melman. In
1: 1957, Tom Geismar co-founded the firm Brown John, Chermayev, and Geismar. Today it's known as Chermayev and Geismar and Haviv, and it's one of the most storied branding and design firms in the business. In his long career, Tom Geismar has done it all, from a national system of standardized transportation symbols to some of the most memorable logos of our time, including Xerox, PBS, and National Geographic. There's a lot to talk about today. His career, his recent National Design Award for Lifetime Achievement, and his latest exhibit here at the School of Visual Arts where he joins me now. Tom, welcome to Design Matters. Good afternoon. So I just saw your exhibit at SVA here in New York City and saw a drawing that you created of Dick Tracy when you were 9 years old. I read that he was your favorite comic strip character. Yes. Why? Why why Dick Tracy?
0: I don't know. You know, we had much more limited exposure to things. So comic strips were obviously a favorite and comic books. And there was something about Dick Tracy. And I don't think it was the special watch that's now just come out.
1: Or his outfit, something about his dapper style.
0: His style and his ability to escape. There was always one great one where he was in a garbage can and some guy is riddling it with machine gun bullets. And then he emerges completely unscathed.
1: Ah, so something about that intrigued you. Right. Coming out unscathed. (laughs) (laughs) So you were born and grew up in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, and you won an award for best poster design when you were 17 from the Maplewood chapter of the United World Federalists. Was that when you decided to pursue graphic design as a career?
0: One thing I remembered is that there was no such thing as graphic design at that time. It was commercial art. The name didn't exist, right. And no one taught it, really. You could take commercial art or advertising art. But I don't know that there were any art schools that taught graphic design. And there was one exception which actually influenced me, which was a book called Graphic Design by Leon Friend. And that was published in the 30s. I didn't get it till some years later, but I thought that was really intriguing, all the things that it showed and described. And all that was from Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn.
1: Which was a real hotbed of
0: design Oh, absolutely. Design all thinking. the great designers came out of that. But that was one of the only examples, I think, of actually using the name graphic design.
1: So what was the United World Federalists, and why did you design a poster in their poster contest?
0: You know, I don't (laughs) (laughs) really— You don't remember? don't remember. I used to love to design posters. I used to go to art school on Saturday for drawing classes, and I was always interested in, in art. I didn't know what to make of it, but I always liked it.
1: But I read that your childhood fantasy was to be a tackle for the New York Giants. Yes. And so what prevented you from doing that? Many things. (laughs) (laughs) Why? You're tall. You played football. Why didn't you go for the gusto?
0: (laughs) Yeah, after high school, that was sort of the end of my athletic career.
1: So you decided to concurrently attend the Rhode Island School of Design and Brown University. Why both schools?
0: Well, my father thought I should study economics, and I wanted to study art. And I found out, never having visited, that Rhode Island School Design was right next to Brown. And it actually worked out very well because I, I worked out a deal, which I don't think you can do today, where I could take whatever I wanted at RISD and get credit at Brown as one course.
1: So was there an affiliation between the two schools back then? Well, there's
0: always been some affiliation. I mean, they literally are right next to each other. I don't know whether you can do it today, but at that time, I had my choice of whatever I wanted to Take so I almost you know took the complete Rhode Island school of design uh, course, but i I eliminated a lot of things I didn't want to deal with
1: and did you study economics at all?
0: I took one course in economics, which I was about to fail till I somehow managed to cheat on the exam.
1: <gasps> you cheated <laughs> on the exam. How did you cheat? Did you write notes on your hand?
0: No, I went into the professor's office to ask him a question, and then there I saw this huge stack of annual reports from I don't remember what. And I realized the exam was going to be to take these annual reports. So I went to some brokerage office downtown, got a copy of the report and sort of knew what was going to (laughs) come.
1: Wow, that's awesome. So did you did you pass the test? I passed. Okay, good. <laughs> well, yeah. you graduated Phi Beta Kappa from RISD and Brown and then went on to get a master's degree in graphic design from the Yale University School of Art and Architecture. What made you decide at that point to go get a master's degree?
0: You know, the poster thing that you talked about, I used to love to make posters. I, I was always intrigued by that aspect of design. But I had very little of it at RISD. I mean, they just didn't offer very much at the time, and I mostly took life drawing and things like that. And the professor of life drawing told me about this new program at Yale, which had only been in existence for a couple of years at that point. And it sounded interesting. I went down there and and visited, and I thought, gee, maybe this is something to really do, and it turned out it was.
1: Now, you attended Yale when the department there was just starting out. Alvin Eisenman was head of the department at the time and brought in many of the leading designers of that time, Herbert Matter, Lester Beale, Armin Hoffman. And you've said that they were a great inspiration to you. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how they inspired you and some of the more important things that you might have learned from them.
0: The way it was organized at the time was that you would basically spend six weeks doing one thing. It might be photography with Herbert Matter, it might be printmaking, it might be typography, and you would devote your full time to that. So in, on the one hand, you got really intense involvement in those various subjects. And then we had all these sort of famous designers come and – They were interesting, they were articulate, they were good critics, but you also realized they were all saying different things, which made you think for yourself, in a sense. So it was a very interesting and heady experience.
1: You've said that Joseph Albers, who was teaching color, painting, and drawing, was the best teacher you ever had. Why is that?
0: Because he really made you think for yourself. I mean, one thing he would do would be to put up work from a previous year of a certain kind of thing that he was going to ask you and laud this work and say how great it was and everything and then give you the assignment. Next week, when people came back and they had things very much like what he had shown, he would rip them off the wall. (laughs) 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 You know, say they were terrible and use much worse language.
1: So he'd shake everybody up a bit.
0: (laughs) He'd shake them up. Many people went out crying and everything. But again, all he was trying to do was make you do your own thing.
1: So you met your partner, Ivan Chermayev, at Yale while doing research on papers about typeface design and realized that you both had a common interest in the design of alphabets. Do you remember your very first meeting? What was that meeting like?
0: Well, it wasn't so much the meeting. We were just students together. But Alvin Eisenman assigned us topics. You had to do a thesis at the end of your year. And he assigned me to do a history of sans-serif typefaces. And he assigned Ivan to do a history of slab serif typefaces. And we discovered that at Columbia, here in New York, in the Rare Book Library, they had this incredible collection of all these type specimen books going back to the 19th century. So we spent a number of days traveling back and forth between New Haven and New York to look at these and microfilm them and so on. And that's really how we got to know each other well.
1: So, you graduated from Yale in 1955. You were then drafted into the Army and worked in the Army Exhibition Unit. In 1957, Ivan contacts you. I think he just contacted you out of the blue, is that correct?
0: Pretty much, yes. We hadn't talked really since school.
1: And he calls you up and he says he's sick of freelancing and he wants to start an office with a fellow who his father, who was a well-known architect, knew who he wanted to do it with. And then he asked you to join them. And that fellow, air quotes, was Robert Brownjohn. And you decided to come on board and you called the agency Brownjohn and Tremayoff and Geismar. What made you decide to take a leap with these guys?
0: I was, you know, about two or three months away from getting discharged from the Army. I had absolutely no plans. I had no idea what I was going to do. So it actually sounded, why not, you know?
1: Thinking back on it, it's sort of like the Beatles getting together. It's this extraordinary moment in graphic design, these three men with all of this talent coming together. How did you all get started? How did you go about getting business when you all really had so little collective experience?
0: Well, we did have a little experience. I didn't have much experience, but Ivan had been freelancing for those two years since graduation, and BJ had also, and we had this deal with, I think, Columbia Records, where they'd give us 20 album covers to do at once, you know, for 75 bucks a piece or something. I
1: read it was a dozen for 75 a piece.
0: (laughs) And we did the same with book jackets and so on. You know, it's a way to get, to have some work and get noticed.
1: In doing my research for today's show, I read Emily King's wonderful book about Robert Brownjohn called Sex and Typography. And you tell a story in that book about working with BJ that you felt typified him and who he was and what he stood for. Apparently his teeth were in terrible shape and he finally went to the dentist and you were surprised that he actually went and you assumed he must have been in terrible pain and you go on to explain that the dentist told him that he would have to pull out his teeth and replace them with false teeth. But Robert insisted that the false teeth... Be made as brown and moldy as the ones they were pulling out and they did and somehow the dentist really made his teeth look rotten. <laughs> um, it seemed like this typified who he was and in the short time he was on this planet and the work that the three of you did in your studio is work that is so remarkable and so influential. What was a favorite project of the three of yours at that time?
0: Well, for one thing, just to diverge a minute, in this new office, it was basically a two-bedroom apartment or something. So I shared a room with BJ, and we our desks were, you know, wood doors, basically <laughs> on saw horses.
1: You get them from a lumber lumberyard, oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> and so we sat facing each other. So I spent you know two years or two and a half years facing and listening to and talking with BJ. And that was one of the really great inspirations.
1: You've written about how BCG started to get more significant when you began doing work for Pepsi. You started doing their magazine. You created exhibits in their lobby, a show about toys, one about the American flag, one about theater in Germany. How did you get Pepsi as a client, first of all, and then how did you convince them to let you do such edgy breakthrough work? I mean, the work that you did for Pepsi at that time was really remarkable, the way that you created the exhibits and how were you able to do so much and for that work to be so progressive?
0: Well, as always, or usually with these things, it's somewhat serendipitous. It turned out that the editor of the Pepsi World Magazine, which was their internal <clears throat> magazine, was an old friend of BJ's. So it was through him that we got involved with them, and it was part of their communications and public relations and so on. In terms of the exhibits, they had just moved into 500 Park Avenue, and that whole lobby, which is now a bank and something else, was empty. They didn't really know what to do with it. And we had the idea of making it an exhibit place for temporary exhibits.
1: And did they give you big budgets or was it something you had to fight with them about? Did they reject work? How hard were they a client to work with at that time?
0: I don't remember it being the, – the penance we had to pay was that at the time, Joan Crawford was married to the chairman of Pepsi and she was no chicken at that time. And <laughs> we spent a great deal of time retouching – photos, and of course, then you did it by hand of Joan Crawford to make her look better for this magazine. So that was half of what we ended up doing.
1: p j died in 1970, and you've said that he instilled in you the notion that the idea was all important. Bob Gill has said the same thing many times, and even on this show, in this room, he said the same thing. I'm wondering, do you feel that there's a lack of ideas in design today or that ideas are not the centerpiece of design?
0: I think that was the thing that was significant at that time was that everything was about style. You know, we were at the same time as pop art and all those kind of things, which was all about ideas and so on. So it was all part and parcel of the times. I think we were very lucky to be at that time and it really was a break. Today, there's just so much more. I mean, there are some that are ideas and some that are not ideas. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think there's just such a mix.
1: Now, you and Ivan have stayed partners since you started. You've been partners since 1957. That is an extraordinary <laughs> yeah. accomplishment. How have you managed to stay together all these decades?
0: Well, you know, we've been asked this many times, and we're never sure how to how to answer it. But the one thing that we agree on and that we've said is it's, it's kind of mutual respect. I, I think, you know, one of the things when we started the firm, the idea was to work collaboratively. And again, that was unheard of. All those great teachers that we had at Yale, and everything, all of them were on their own or were the art director of a magazine or something. But we thought you could do it in a different way. So – We've always done that. We've always basically tried to credit everything to the firm and really feel everyone benefits from that way of working.
1: Have you seen the way in which you work change over the years, or has it pretty much remained constant in the way that you collaborate?
0: When we were bigger, it was much more separate, actually. But today, it's much more a collaborative group thing, because we have an office of 10 people, and, and that makes it a lot easier.
1: And has bringing in Sagi Haviv changed the dynamic between the two of you? Is collaborating with a third person now something that has taken a while for you to get used to?
0: Well, first of all, we've often had other partners, so you know we're very used to that, and we've always liked that. Sagi came basically out of school, out of Cooper Union, and I think he saw in what we were doing something that really resonated with him. And he's been just a terrific help and has taken on so much responsibility in the office, which, given our age, has been great.
1: I want to talk a little bit about your book, Identify. In the introduction, famed fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi writes... As a little boy, I was as much affected and reassured by the Chase Manhattan logo and the mobile oil sign as I was by the good parenting I received. And like parenting, the deeply felt presence of these iconic symbols was at times as disquieting as it was reassuring. Those iconic symbols were always in the background. They were omnipresent and dominant. Sometimes unnoticed, they were felt. In almost the exact same way as our parents, those monolithic, humorous, homogeneous logos raised us in the country we are for good or bad. How do you think these logos achieve that type of reaction? Is it something about our humanity or something about the identities or culture? How do do the logos that we live with rise to this level?
0: Well, one lesson that we've learned early on is that all the logo does is represent whatever the entity is. And people's feeling about it are completely determined by their experiences with that entity. One test we often do is to say, well, you know, who do you think has a good logo? And inevitably people will say, well, Apple and Nike and, you know, once they think highly of it, no one will ever say Enron. And Paul Rand designed Enron's logo and it really was very good. But no one would ever say that because their feelings are too much affected about the history. So... You know, it's not the logo design, it's what stands behind them.
1: I actually often think that it's the marketing and not really the mark at all. Would people really think that Nike's swoosh was really the power logo that it is if $100 million of marketing money wasn't put behind it every year?
0: Well, that gets it established in people's mind, so it's recognized everywhere. But it doesn't necessarily, I don't think, affect their feelings about it. Because that comes from the products and the advertising and and everything else. And their experience, if you call on the phone, it's everything.
1: So Isaac also states, and and I'm quoting again from your book, the social implications of these logos are as varied as the products they represent. Airlines, TV studios, oil companies, banks – These are the shaping influences of our lives as Americans, and without those logos, our world would have no physical identity. You can say they stand for the strongest part of our country, the pulling to the middle of all classes, all races, religions, and peoples. Large, simple shapes in standard, clear-cut colors. Plain, honest images that would instill confidence in anyone order and strength, leadership, principles that reflect corporate culture. Only after the fact of Chermayev and Geismar, they taught corporate America how to think. I love that line. You taught corporate America how to think.
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's in the introduction yeah. of your book.
1: <laughs> so I'm going to assume that that's true for a moment, just okay. for the for the sheer virtue of having this conversation. I happen to think it is, but I know you probably don't. But if, for a moment, you could imagine that they have, how do you think that they've done that?
0: I don't know. I, I mean, again, I think we think of it in a much simpler terms. You know, we go to great lengths in designing logos of really understanding who the people are, what they're about, what are the people think of them, what they want to be, and so on. And especially recently, we've been doing it for a lot of nonprofit organizations, And they have the exact same issues. It's really no different. It's not a matter of corporate or not corporate or whatever.
1: But I think that the approach that you take is far more abstract. It's far more graphic. It's far more conceptual. I mean, I think that the work that you've done has really changed the way we expect logos to look like. And what made you decide to make those decisions? Was it conscious? Was it something that you looked at and said, why is everybody doing it this way? Let's try and do it this way. How did you make those changes to begin with?
0: Well, I don't know if we made changes, but I I think it is true that we have a propensity to try to do things in the simplest, most direct way, but at the same time where they have some element that makes it memorable and obviously appropriate to whomever the organization is. What we've seen over the years are all kinds of trends and fashions. And it's always seemed to us that it's that's a really bad idea to use in logo design because the whole idea is to have the thing work for many, many years and not to go out of fashion. So we've basically continued in terms of what we feel is the direction in a very similar vein. But within that, there's a huge amount of variety. And we don't have a style, I'd say. But again, trying to gear it to what's most appropriate.
1: So let's talk about some of your most known identities. Let's talk first about your iconic Chase logo. I read that when Chase National Bank merged with the Bank of the Manhattan Company to create Chase Manhattan Bank in 1955, the new company became the second largest bank in the U.S., and the new organization needed a new identity to represent it. So originally, the plan was to launch the new identity together with the opening of the new headquarters, which was at that point a 60-story skyscraper. You wrote in your book, banks at that time generally used trademarks that grew from their initials or an image of the bank's headquarters building. Chase Manhattan briefly used an awkward combination of a map of the United States, a representation of a glove, the name of a bank, and the phrase worldwide banking. So talk about the octagonal mark. Where did it come from? How did you do it? I read that people hated it at first in the bank. The chairman didn't want to go with it. Talk about how you came up with that identity.
0: Well, one of the issues is what is a symbol of banking? I mean, we couldn't think of any, and I don't think anyone has really thought of any. So that was one thing. What what do you do for a bank? The other thing was recognizing the exposure, just as you mentioned with Nike, that Chase was in the newspaper every day and they had branches all over and everything. Maybe you could establish something that was not a literal thing, but something else that in the long run would give them, you know, a lot of recognition. So that was just the idea of doing something abstract, for the bank. And the one that was chosen, you know, it seemed to have a, an activity to it. And there was also a slight rationale in that there were many Chinese coins, ancient Chinese coins, in basically that shape with a hole in the middle and so on. So it had some relationship to money. But the fact is, we wanted to establish something. We felt you could establish something that was actually a completely abstract mark to identify a company this big, I mean, the problem is then everyone else started to want to do the same thing and they didn't have near the exposure and whatever. And that didn't make any sense.
1: And there also seemed to be a bit of dimensionality to the mark that yeah, felt I mean, really breakthrough. I remember seeing it when I was a little girl thinking, trying to imagine what it was supposed to stand for and what it meant. and. I mean, I love to sort of project into logos in that way. But when you first presented the Chase logo, I understand the chairman hated it. He said that he'd go along with the decision of his team, but that he did not want to see it on his letterhead, his business card, or anywhere in the office. I mean, how can you have a logo and not have it on the letterhead, the business card, or anywhere in the office? And how was he persuaded otherwise?
0: Well, he wasn't really persuaded. I mean, he just agreed, you can have it, but I don't want it on any of my things. And, of course, the the last part of that story is that when we saw him six months later in the hallway there, he had a tie with the logo on. He had cufflinks with the logo <laughs> on. He had a pin in his lapel. Because then it had come to represent the bank, and he was very proud of the bank. And that was sort of the great lesson
1: so let's talk about the mobile logo, one of my okay. all-time favorite logos. You designed the logo and developed the complete corporate identification program for mobile, and you worked with them or are still working with them for 35 years. What's it like to work for a client that long? Do you ever get sick of each other? The thing
0: that I think is most interesting about mobile is that we got involved because this is, you know, the early mid-60s, right? And... Starting in the 50s, you know, there was this huge flight to the suburbs and development of new suburbs. The interstate highway system was being built and so on. Cars were, you know, everyone had to have a car. You had to have a two-car garage on the suburb and so on. And the service stations were horrendous looking things with banners flying over and tires all over wrapped in foil and whatever. And... Raleigh Warner, who was the chairman of who was about to become chairman, recognized this and felt that if they could have a much more presentable, attractive station, they would be able to go into these suburban communities, zoning boards, and win the right to have their station there as opposed to one of the others. So he asked Elliot Noyes, and Elliot in turn asked us to be part of it. And we very much did the whole thing together as a, you know, a very comprehensive thing. We presented it together. We only presented one design. Really? To everyone.
1: Is that something that you generally do, show one design?
0: We seldom do that. It's just, in that one case, the whole thing was such a a complex idea involving architecture, involving product design, involving graphics, and it was all very integrated as one thing, and there didn't seem to be any good reason to show other ideas.
1: Talk about the red O. Why is the O red in the mobile logo?
0: Mobile wasn't even the name of the company at that time. First was Siccone Vacuum Oil Company, and then Sicconi Oil Company, then Ciccone Mobile. It didn't become mobile to after all this. And people would say Mobile. <laughs> so part of the O was to emphasize the way the word should be pronounced but most importantly as part of this integrated design one of the main concepts that Elliot had was to have canopies there were no there was no self-service at that time so no one had canopies or anything but he thought you know probably it's going to happen and if we had canopies, it gives a distinction to the forecourt, the station, and we want to play that up and play down the building and get rid of all those garish signs and colors and so on on the building and so on. And then he had the idea of making the pumps round and other dispensing equipment round. So circles was a big part of the idea and using circles. So the O you know, very much fit into that by emphasizing it.
1: Did you ever have concerns that mobile wasn't behaving ethically in in culture? Did you ever think that maybe you had to resign their business at any point over the long tenure you've been with them?
0: As someone asked, I mean, how could you work for both mobile and PBS? And the ironic thing is that mobile was, was a great for support PBS. for PBS. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> one of the interesting things about our experience with mobile over over 30 years we never met or dealt with anyone who hadn't spent their entire career there it was i think a somewhat different kind of company exxon had a completely different personality and we stopped working very soon after that uh, after the merger yeah i mean it was just a completely mm-hmm. different atmosphere
1: And they have two beautiful logos, Exxon and Mobil. I don't know what it is about oil companies between Exxon, Mobil, and BP. We have three of the most beautiful identities ever created. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, one of the interesting things about Mobil was that they were always, as far as design goes, way ahead of the time. And when those first stations were done, that was definitely way beyond what anyone else had done. And then 20 years later, we sort of redid everything still using all the basic elements in terms of the graphics and so on. But at that time, self-service had come in and pumps were now a single pump rather than separate pumps for every grade. And basically nothing has changed since then. And I, I think that whole thing of pushing ahead, trying out new things and everything has been lost, unfortunately. And now everything's pretty much the same with all the companies.
1: Well, certainly the banks, yep. they all look exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. I read an interview that you did with Fast Company, and you stated that logos are funny things. At first, they are just designs on paper. Eventually, they come to embody all the qualities of the organization they represent, and most people cannot separate the design from their full range of opinions about the organization. The hard task the designer faces is trying to help the client see how the logo might eventually be perceived how it will work for them, not just whether they like it. And I'm wondering, how do you get a client to be able to see how something will eventually be perceived as opposed to whether or not they subjectively like something in that moment in time?
0: It's very difficult.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you'd tell me and then I would know how to do it.
0: Well, what we do is when we present any design, any logo design, we never just show it, you know, on a piece of white paper or white screen or we show it what it would look like an application. And we do a lot of applications. Like what? You know, a letterhead. It might be a business card. It might be a sign. It might be a truck. It might be Sorry, a brochure. So Everything we can think of an ad and whatever. And then we say, it's not what you like. It's what works, you know. It's still. There's still somebody (laughs) that's
1: going to show it to you know their mother-in-law, and their mother-in-law is going to weigh in and say, you know, I don't really like purple, and then you find out you can't use purple in the design. So how do you get over those kinds of obstacles?
0: Well, we try to control the presentations, and even if it's not in person, and we always try to do it in person. So even if we're doing it electronically, we don't just hand it out to people. You know, we try and do it in a way that we can control it and advise them not to go show it to everyone and so on. And sometimes it works and <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. Work. Yeah. I've just been doing something try, trying to remember all the sort of great clients, you know, and there aren't that many that you have over your career. But the ones that you think of as being great generally are open to other ideas and not preconceived ideas.
1: So was working for the Harry S. Truman Presidential Library and Museum, was that a great client?
0: No, that was a very difficult client, actually.
1: Talk about how do you even start to design an identity and a space for a presidential library and museum? How do you begin to even wrap your head around getting started on something like that? Where do you begin?
0: Well, you begin with a story, I think. And once you know the story... How can it be broken down and, you know, what's, what's a logical organization for it and what's important to be said and what would the means be to best say those things? It's a complex process involving a lot of people and, you know, a lot of thinking and a lot of, a lot of back and forth. But it's not so different really from solving any kind of design problem.
1: It's so interesting how, over time, opinions change, whether it's about politicians, whether it's about art, whether it's about design, whether it's about logos. Right. I recently read an article where Pentagram designer Abbott Miller stated that he thinks the phenomenon of branding has become oppressive, and he went on to say that he prefers the word identity to brand because it suggests something more mutable and more contextual. And I'm wondering. Given the shift over the decades from commercial art to graphic design to now what a lot of people call branding, if you would agree with the idea of branding being oppressive or the notion of the word brand being oppressive?
0: Well, we actually never used the word brand. Is that Uh, intentional? It is intentional because I think of brand as, as being a very big picture. I mean, it's affected by everything. And what we're doing is the visual identity is what we call it. And that's only part of branding, if you will. So we very much make the point that we are doing that part of it. And sometimes we're working with other people who are doing other aspects of the more total total picture.
1: But when you do an identity, when you create an identity, do you have to first understand the context of what that identity needs to achieve? Why does this design need to be done? What is the effect that it has to have, why now, so to speak, and understand the strategic context of the identity prior to designing?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And you wouldn't consider that to be sort of branding? No. I mean, again,
0: we just try to understand who they are, where they are, where they're going. And it doesn't mean we accept it all or, you know, think it's all important or all important for the design of the identity. It may or may not be. But at least we want to know it.
1: It seems to me that you are quite humble about your role as a designer, even in the way that the SVA show was constructed. You didn't frame any of the posters in the show, and you stated that you're perfectly happy being a designer. And I think even in that statement, there is a underlying notion that there are others that feel that being a designer is not enough, that you need to somehow be more or do more via branding or via some type of strategic roadmap. And so I'm just wondering if you feel that way. Do you feel like there's a authenticity that is missing in a lot of the way work is being approached now?
0: What I was contrasting it to is being an artist. I think a lot of designers, when they have a show, want to show their artwork, if you will. And that's why I didn't want to have the posters framed or other things. And that's what I meant by uh, being a designer as opposed to an artist. The distinction there is that as a designer, you generally have clients and you're not solving your own problems. So you may be doing that a bit too, but you're basically trying to solve someone else's problems. And we we very much do look at it as a problem-solving kind of activity. And that's an essential, I think, an essential difference. Again, that's why they're also sort of eclectic, I think, because the, the clients are so different.
1: How much does the actual drawing of a logo or the drawing of sketches figure into your work now?
0: We still always start with drawing it's just so much faster, at least, at least we find, in terms of developing ideas. You know, once you have the idea, then obviously it's much easier to take the computer and you can look at all kinds of variations and so on. But in terms of putting down an idea, I, I think it's still a pretty poor way to draw.
1: I have a question for you, completely unrelated, but something I'm dying to know about. I understand that you collect toy robots, And I've read that you've said that it was an unintentional collection, but yet you've had exhibits of your collection, books about it. So why Toy Robots? What what is it about Toy Robots that you find so intriguing?
0: Well, it started actually many years ago. We were designing the U.S. government pavilion for a World's Fair in Japan and spending a fair amount of time in Japan. And... Looking in the department stores, I found all these cast metal robots, which were beautifully designed, I thought, and very nice materials. And they even almost always had the picture of the designer on the box. You know, they were very thoughtful but interesting. And those are what I started, you know, getting interested in and and buying some that I thought were interesting. I never was a collector in the in the sense of, you know, I have to have everything of this or whatever. I don't even know the names of most of them.
1: But you have o- over a 100 different toy robots. I mean, the exhibit that Kit Heinrichs created for you for the Frank Gehry yeah. Designed Experience Music Project in Seattle was titled, A Designed Collection of Miniature Mechanical Marvels. And it was featuring over one hundred examples from the nineteen fifties and and to to now the more sort of complex, sophisticated transformers, so to speak. So that that seems like a real commitment. <laughs> it doesn't seem like just a sort of dabbling in in you know the occasional eBay purchase.
0: No, well, then, and that wasn't everything that they had there in the show. But <laughs> <laughs>
1: there you yeah, have it. You're making my point for me
0: <laughs> again. I just I just bought the ones that I liked. You know, that I I just thought were interesting.
1: And where do you find comments. them? Do you, do you go to auctions? Well, I used to. I,
0: I haven't actually bought any in a number of years. No, I don't go to auctions and things. And I never spent very much money on them either. And my interest was also not how they worked. You know, what they shot out and all that kind of stuff. So it was
1: really how they looked.
0: It was how they looked,
1: I want to ask you about your work on the book Symbol Signs. This is a book that was developed by AIGA in the 1970s for the U.S. Department of Transportation. And this included the complete study of passenger and pedestrian-oriented symbols for all U.S. airports, train stations, bus terminals, And it's since become the de facto international standard. What is it like seeing you work in every airport of the entire world? Again, we
0: were solving a problem.
1: And you work with Massimo Vignelli and Seymour Quast.
0: Right. And Rudy Diarroch. And uh, we had this group. And and what we did is we got a bunch of students from Yale to gather everything from around the world, every system we could think of. And then we analyzed that. We put them all together. So all the men's room signs, you know, we had a page, and you put them together and analyzed them by concept. And then finally, after much discussion, agreed on a concept. That happened to be a pretty easy one, but some of them weren't so easy.
1: I can imagine. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall watching you guys disagree and agree and but fight it was it funny.
0: Out. One of the big controversies was an arriving flight. And most people had a plane heading down, and Massimo was completely freaked out by the idea of a plane heading down. And <laughs> I don't even remember what we did. <laughs> right.
1: So I had dinner last week with Seymour Quas wife, Paula Cher, and we were talking about you, we were talking about your career, and I asked her what one question would she recommend that I ask you today? And so this is her question. So this is my last question of our interview. She says, you've always been a consistent performer in all your years as a designer. This is rare and extremely difficult to achieve. Did you have a best decade? And if so, what was it?
0: Well, I, I, I guess I would say the 60s was just such a time of change and great things and terrible things, Um, but certainly the most memorable, I think.
1: And so many of the logos that you designed then are still in existence today, but I still think that the newer work that you've done for the Women's Tennis Association, for Avery, for Health Partners, the University of New Hampshire, I think they're all just as beautiful. So thank you for making the world a much more beautiful, thoughtful place with your iconic work, Tom. And thank you for being on Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. You can find out more about Tom Geismar at cgstudionyc.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.